0: Liverpool and Manchester, two gloriously independent-minded electric places, yet the inhabitants dislike each other with a passion that is visceral. It is a divide that spans generations across class, gender, and ethnicity, and it has only grown over the years, largely driven by one thing, football. In this episode of PageCast, voracious reader, book critic and football fan David Goran speaks with esteemed sports journalists and authors of Red on Red, Phil McNulty and Jim White. This is an utterly fascinating conversation and we recommend you put your football jersey aside and enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome, PageCast listeners. I'm Dave Gorin, football lover and book reviewer. And in this case today, uh, they coincide because we are reviewing and discussing a book called Red on Red, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the Fiercest Football Rivalry in the World, or the Fiercest Rivalry in World Football. With me on this pagecast today are Phil McNulty and Jim White. Jim is a writer at The Telegraph, one of the best newspapers, if not in the world, certainly in England, and Phil is a, a, the BBC's chief football writer, which is a position he's held for many, many years. So both men are extremely well qualified to discuss football with us in general and, of course, the book in particular. They're also both particularly uh, suited to review Liverpool and Manchester United because Phil is from the city of, of Liverpool, born and bred there. And Jim is a, a Manchester United fan uh, who has been following uh, the team's fortunes for many years. At this point, I should introduce myself uh, or my own bias, the obligatory uh, uh, Jurgen drop cap. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and on that note, I think I better take it off. Otherwise, I won't get any sense <laughs> out of Jim. So, onto the book itself, um, guys. I think what really struck me about this is when you when you turn to the contents page, it's a bit, if I can say, it's a bit odd because there's no real background to the cities. There's no uh, introduction to any of the great characters. It's all really just rooted in ten specific iconic matches between the two the two uh, great clubs. And I thought that was quite an unusual stance to take. Um, I think it works brilliantly, but can you maybe just give a bit of background to to why you decided to take that approach?
0: Uh, The book wasn't an idea from myself or Jim. It actually came from my wife, who's a a massive Liverpool fan. And she said there have been lots of books written about Manchester United and Liverpool, but none of them had examined the wider aspects of the rivalry, taking in the culture, the politics, music, fashion, all that sort of thing. And because it's such a wide ranging subject, I think we felt that maybe the best way to approach it was to have an intro and a concluding chapter. And in between, try to tell the story of the rivalry over 10 specific, significant games, just to give it some focus, really. Otherwise, we could have been all over the place. And we just wanted something to give it focus. And I think 10 games, 10 specific games, tell a story and reflect on the rivalry uh, gives it the sort of focus that this type of book needs I think. And
2: David, it's, it's not it's not a kind of match report of those games. Within those games, we tell the, the history of the two cities, the rivalry, mm. and so on. These are games we felt had a, a significant story. So, for instance, uh, the um, the game in which Luis Suarez and Patrice Evra collided. In a sense, we're not really interested in that game. What we're interested in is what that incident says about the rivalry between Manchester United and Liverpool. And as Phil will tell you, what it says really about the rivalry between Manchester United and Liverpool is that that's the most important thing on the character's involved mind. And, And in many ways, if Evra had... Come up against somebody from Tottenham and said that it wouldn't have become the issue it became, but the history, the kind of fabric of the dispute, really played into that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a match that I'd, I'd like to come back to a bit later in the in the discussion, Jim. Um, but but let's start then with the first match in the book, which is the nineteen seventy seven FA Cup final between the two clubs. Um, funny enough it's it's it hooked me immediately because i was 13 years old television had basically just come to south africa and it was i think the first fa cup final to be broadcast in the country live and uh i'd been a liverpool fan i think for three or four years before three years before then uh, since the 74 fa cup final and of course i was devastated with the results and it's interesting to me that you itemize that as a watershed in the relationship or in the deterioration, shall we say, or the escalation of the rivalry of the two clubs. So I was particularly intrigued by that. Maybe can you just give us a bit of detail as to why you
0: felt that was yeah, the watershed? You know, in the 60s, there was great respect between the two clubs and, and almost a friendship, lots of which stem from the, the managers, Matt Busby, Sir Matt Busby at Manchester United who many people forget was a great, well-respected player for Liverpool. And Bill Shankly, they were two Scots with very similar working-class backgrounds who'd built these teams. I mean, Matt Busby obviously, because of the Munich disaster, had to build two teams at Manchester United. Uh, Bill Shankly took Liverpool from the old second division to supremacy in the first division in England. So there were were players who used to go and, um, well, Manchester United would stand on the cop and watch Liverpool playing. Uh, The sort of thing you couldn't imagine now. Uh, And I think Jim will explain that in some respects that game was the last vestiges of any sort of friendly rivalry because, of course, Liverpool were going for the treble at that time, the treble that only Manchester United have ever achieved, which was the SA Cup, European Cup slash Champions League and the league title. It was the last vestiges of of, of friendship before (laughs) it then crossed the border into into rivalry, um, which became extremely toxic in the mid-80s.
2: Yeah, I think what's really interesting, uh, Dave, is that Manchester United and Liverpool are the two most decorated clubs in English football history. They've won the most between them. But what's remarkable is how rarely they come into conflict with each other in the big games, you know, it, it over the years, it's two FA Cup finals, two League Cup finals, never met in the Europe. Uh, sorry, never met in the Champions League, um, and very rarely are they both going for the league title at once. And Phil said that you know, uh, and Liverpool were these two great sides, the two most storied sides in in English football history. 77 was the first time they'd met in a cup final. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. Uh, and, and so that collision in itself was very unusual. And, yeah, you yeah. know, there was Liverpool going for the treble. United looking, in a sense, to kind of restore their own prestige. You know, they'd been down in the second division in the early 70s. Things weren't going well. They, they got to the cup final the previous year and lost. And so there was a lot of determination amongst their squad to win the trophy. And interestingly, yeah, we yeah. spoke to people involved in that cup final. And, and they said that stopping Liverpool winning the treble was never a motivation at the time. Didn't even occur to them. What mattered to them, the United players, was winning the FA Cup. And it's only latterly. You know, Arthur Olbiston, Martin Buchan, Lou Macari. these guys, they can't buy a drink anymore because someone will come up to them and buy them a drink, a United fan, and thank them for stopping Liverpool winning the treble. Yeah. But at the time, yeah. it wasn't part of their motivation. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think w- what struck me about that game too is how you mentioned, which I didn't know, that Lou Macari, who took the shot, okay, I think the goal is credited to Jimmy Greenoff, but Lou Macari took the shot, that it ended up being the winning goal. And he was almost a Liverpool player, wasn't he? He was, I think, poached from Liverpool, or poached,
0: the purchase was poached uh, by, somehow by Manchester United. Well, what, what happened was that um, Lou Macari want, wanted a move from Celtic because he felt he wasn't being paid enough. And Bill Shankley and Steam were very great yes. friends. And Bill shankley had said, "'Whenever you're thinking of selling this guy, "'make sure you let me know.' Well, a fee of around £200,000 was agreed, and Lou Macari wasn't told where he was going. He was just said, like, get in a car, you're off um, down south. Anyway, off he went, suddenly arrives at Anfield and he's attending an FA Cup replay against Burnley. And basically all he had to do was sign on a piece of paper and he was a Liverpool player. Instead, Liverpool had this game to play, so really that was Shantley's priority. And so... Lou Macari went and sat in the director's box to watch the game, after which he would then sign this piece of paper that would make him a Liverpool player. Just as the game was about to kick off, Paddy Crerand, who was Tommy Docherty's assistant at that time, sat down in the director's box next to him. And he said, hello, Lou, what are you doing here? And Lou Macari said, I'm signing for Liverpool, at which point, and I've cleaned up what he actually said was, no, you're not. You sit there. You're coming to Manchester United. (laughs) Paddy Crerand dashed off got to a payphone, presumably it was in those days, contacted Tommy Doherty, what amazing came back, said to Lou Macari, the doc wants you, come to Manchester United. And Lou Macari, avoiding Bill Shankly on the way out of Anfield, saying he needed more time to think about it, just headed straight to Old Trafford uh, and signed, signed for Manchester United. And interestingly enough, you look back on the trophies Liverpool won, and the trophies United won, and even a period in the old second division, Lou Macari says he never, ever regrets making that decision. He said people always say, well, you could have won this, that and the Mm. other at Liverpool. But he said he looked at the Liverpool side with Keegan and Toshak and people like that. He wondered, would he get in the team? That was one of the things that was concerning him. And he said also, he said at that time, despite Liverpool having the greater success, the greater glamour was around Manchester United. You know, they were talking about Best and Law and Charlton. What he said he didn't realise was they'd all be gone within a matter of months once he got there. But he said United had glamour when he went around the world. It was all United people talked about. Um, so he said that that is, he said it, it was an amazing story, but he never regrets it. And, you know, he said he, you know, used to enjoy the rivalry. But yeah, um, yeah he was within a, uh, if Liverpool hadn't had the game that night, he would have just travelled upside and become a Liverpool player. But on such things, the course of history changes, and that's one of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let, let's just talk for, for a while about um, the two cities. I think it'd be interesting for our. Our South African listeners and viewers to to know a little bit about the the fact that they're actually both very left leaning politically. Am, am I right? And so the rivalry isn't really you know regional based because they're, obviously they're not. It's not a classical or conventional derby. Nor is it about politics essentially. And so it's really the the rivalry really is rooted in the football. Would that would that be correct?
2: That's you know? right, Dave. I mean, if you look at uh, you know Tottenham against Arsenal, that's about uh, regional supremacy. Uh, Real Madrid-Barcelona yeah. is about politics. Uh, Rangers-Celtic is about sectarianism. And uh, Students, Liverpool, yeah. yep. Liverpool United is uh, is a completely different thing. The two cities are incredibly similar. The two cities also have overextended themselves. They've punched above their weight when it comes to creativity to art to music that kind of thing um phil always uh tells me that i'm going to lose any argument when it comes to music when i say oh but manchester have uh produced um oasis they've produced uh the smiths and he always says yeah yeah the smiths united uh yeah but liverpool have uh, got the beatles and they trump that what both cities interestingly feel is that they are in a way Bigger culturally than the capital London, so in a sense, this is a battle for the supremacy of 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 culture and and what you can produce within your city. Of course, football is a big part of that. You know, and um, what you develop in, on the football field is a is is in a in a sense an expression of your city.
1: I was very interested to read. I mean, just again, we're sort of sidetracking just a little bit from football itself, but it is there is a paragraph about this in in the book about, because it comes down to identity. And there was a paragraph, I think, about some black Mancunians who, when John Barnes joined Liverpool in 70, sorry, when was it, 87, I think, they they actually started supporting Liverpool because of that racial link. And uh, again, I I was quite struck by that because, um, you know, this question of identity, you know, what's more powerful, you know? one 's adherence and, 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 and the and the sported passion that goes behind one 's support for a club or something like like one 's race it's, it's, it, it, was, it was quite interesting to me Well, as a, as i know it wasn't it, it wasn 't a fundamental part of the book, but it was very interesting
2: yeah uh, basically uh, uh, dave i I, I interviewed a uh, 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 a rapper uh, from um Manchester called our kid who is a mixed race guy. And he he was a passionate Manchester United supporter because his dad was, and and he still is. You know, he, he's a match going uh, red uh, now. Um, but he said that when he was growing up a lot, the black lads at uh, his school supported Liverpool because of that, and 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 fascinating. But there are other supporters who we spoke to, an Asian Manchester United supporter who said, yeah, Barnes was, was big, but you know Manchester was more important. I, I mean, that, that was a, a yeah. really interesting... But actually, Liverpool picked up a lot of fans from around Britain when Barnes was there. You know, you will find a lot of um, right. ethnic minority supporters come from places like Birmingham and London to support Liverpool because of Barnes. He was right. huge yeah. in opening up the game into those, into those areas of society.
1: I suspect he played a role in Liverpool's um, popularity in countries like South Africa too, or other parts of Africa. And of course, the Caribbean. Hmm. Yeah, He was definitely an iconic player one of the, I think it was the second or third chapter, also really struck me because it conveyed quite quite powerfully the, the, the strong element of violence that occurred, certainly in the early part of, of the rivalry, you know, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s. And in fact, one shocking photograph of, of a fan with a dart sort of between his eyes. And then mm-hmm. the, the chapter talked about how the, the police, uh, I think it was an FA Cup semi final match. In uh, 81 or 82, if I recall in the book, the police recovered all sorts of dreadful weapons, lumps of glass, golf balls studded with nails, etc. I think, especially the modern generation of fan, we're we're a little bit out of touch with how absolutely violent some of the some of the uh, the, the, the clashes were in in those days. Uh, so I guess just a question, perhaps to you, Phil, do you think that in the modern age, with the with the influx of foreign players into the Premier League? Uh, including, of course, Liverpool and Manchester themselves. Um, the sort of the cleaning up of the stadiums to an extent, and and the yeah, and also the, the the sort of the stricter, more stricter officiating at games. Do you think that that ferocity has been reduced a bit?
0: I think the ferocity ha- has been re- reduced a bit. I think for context, uh, I'll take you back to that 1985 FA Cup semi final at Goodison Park. Um, I, at that time, I was working on the local paper in Liverpool, the Liverpool Daily Post, as a news reporter. And this game has acquired terrible notoriety as almost the peak of of the violence and the toxicity between the the, the two sets of fans. And um, it was held at Goodison Park, which I don't really know if you know Goodison Park. It's a very tightly knit ground. It's locked in by terraced houses. Very old, sort of area of Liverpool. The on the Monday after the game, obviously we've heard all the reports of what had gone on. Merseyside Police called a press conference. And when we got there, a table was laid out with a cloth on it. And on the table were all the list of the things that you've just gone through there. Um, there were hammers, there was lumps of rock. and balls. But again, the most sinister thing, which I think you referred to, were the, the golf balls with nails in them, which were being thrown amongst both sets of fans. And we spoke to Jim Beglin, who'd played in that game, and he'd never experienced anything like this he said in the first few minutes, the ball went out for a throw in. And he said he bent down to take a throw in and was showered from the top of his head to his waist with with saliva, people spitting at him. And he said he was literally just in shock. He said he just stood there. He couldn't believe what happened to him. And he refers to it as feral football. And I think, interestingly enough, because of the trouble on the Saturday, uh, as newspapers, we were all dispatched to Main Road, Manchester City's old ground, for the replay, uh, assuming... There would be uh, some afters, as you'd call it, from from the Saturday, when in fact there was nothing, nothing happened, uh, because I think the two sets of fans had not got it out of their system. But I think they realised that security would be so tight on the Wednesday at Manchester City that it, it would not it would not be allowed to happen again. I think the factors that you then mention about stadia better, maybe more foreign players. I think there is a core of local players who will keep this rivalry going. And I'll I'll let Jim speak next because I know Jim has got a story about a game he attended uh, very recently where that local heart and that rivalry with Manchester United was very much illustrated uh, by Trent Alexander Arnold. But there's a little bit more around that, but I'll let Jim explain that because he he was actually there watching it happen.
2: Yeah, I was in the uh, uh, Stretford End, uh, Dave, game you presumably enjoyed from afar. uh, Liverpool winning 5 0 at. Old Trafford last October I was standing there at the end not many people not many United fans left but the Liverpool players as they left the pitch uh, were getting all sorts of vitriol from the United fans pointing at them shouting at them and um, in the middle of the Liverpool players was Trent Alexander Arnold who is serenaded by Liverpool supporters as the scouser in the team and he was sort of conducting as it were, acquire the United vitriol coming down from the terraces. You know, it showed he was loving it. It, it, He was there. Uh, And one of the things that we have learnt over uh, the process of researching this book is that, yes, you mentioned foreign players coming in, but the foreign players are very quickly brought up to speed with the meaning of this fixture by the local lads within the team. So Liverpool... Gerard Carragher, Danny Murphy in the noughties. They would tell the guys coming in, no, this is the one that matters. Similarly, Gary Neville, Nicky Butt, Ryan Giggs. It's still going on because Marcus Rashford, Trent Alexander-Arnold, who get on very well when they're uh, playing together for England, would actually, um, you know, make sure that the Casimiro coming in or Cody Gakpo coming in at Liverpool are told this is the one that matters and so in a way it hasn't dissipated what's changed though Dave obviously is the violence in the stadiums back in the 70s one of the things about United and Liverpool was they had the two biggest gangs of supporters Uh, and when hooliganism the kind of league table of hooliganism, you know, they wanted to be at the top. So there was mm-hmm, a fight yeah. for rivalry there. I mean, it's just, it's as yeah. kind of simple as that. And now a lot of that right. ugliness has been transferred to social media.
1: Yes, of course. Yeah. But having said that, Jim, do, I mean, and this is a question because I, I think, you know, when we watch a broadcast in South Africa live from 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 the UK, I think it's true to say we don't we we can't see the, the the what's happening on the stands you know the my impression actually is that even iconic stands like the Cop and perhaps the stretford end the glimpses we see of them are sanitized somehow, and we certainly don't get that sense of vehement singing and chanting that one reads about in the book you know i I was quite uh, interested to read about the two rival sets of supporters how they sing about. The Munich Air Disaster, of course, of '58, which killed uh, so many uh, great Manchester uh, 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 players in that in that team. The songs about Hazel and about um, Hillsborough, and I was just wondering: I mean, do, are those songs really still sung, sort of 50, 60 years later?
2: Yeah, I'm afraid. That I, I'm afraid they are still sung, not by the whole stands as they used to be. I, I mean, I think the interesting thing about the Munich chants is it goes back to basically sort of in the mid-70s to late-70s. There was a feeling in Liverpool that Manchester United got all the glory, even though Liverpool was the better football team. And part of United's mythology was this Phoenix from the Flames resurrection after Munich, which Liverpool supporters kind of turned on its head, and, and, and used as a kind of derogatory terminology. The United fans were absolutely um, inflamed by that, but instead of taking the moral high ground, they plunged even further down and started talking about, singing about Heisel and Hillsborough. I think the kind of civilised elements of both uh, sets of supporters will stop that happening within the stadiums. However, I, I have heard people chanting about Hillsborough on my way to matches at Old Trafford between the two clubs so you know it's it's still it still goes on i'm afraid yeah
0: one of the other aspects of this is certainly in the 70s there was a genuine sense that the media was very heavily loaded towards Manchester United uh, all the national newspapers uh, had their offices in Manchester uh, the BBC's offices were in Manchester and the local uh, commercial television, Granada, their office was in Manchester, and they felt they felt that that automatically loaded the dice towards Manchester United and against Liverpool, even though they were only they were supposed to represent both areas and cover both areas. In fact, there was an infamous occasion, where a guy called Tony Wilson, who was a great, great broadcaster and a revolutionary figure with Factory Records and the music scene in Manchester, when Liverpool played Bruges in uh, the in the 1978 European Cup final tony wilson presented the local news wearing a bruges rosette you'd imagine what the, what the, the storm that would cause now and it was a feeling that liverpool had to do a lot to get a little credit and manchester united only had to do a little to get a lot of credit there was a, there was a genuine feeling that the media was against them and in a way the, the liverpool's felt well, that maybe their success was taken for granted because they were winning so many things. Whereas Manchester United, who were maybe throwing in the odd FA Cup or whatever, they'd even been relegated, they were the more glamorous still side. And it certainly rankled. I, as someone who lived in Liverpool at that time, it certainly rankled that the media was very, very sort of pro-Manchester United. And There was, was a famous headline in 1985-86, I think, that Manchester United won their first 10 league games. And I think it might have been the Daily Mirror had a headline on the back, give them the title now. Uh, that went down like a lead balloon. At the end of the season, uh, Everton and Liverpool were, set, were separated by a single point in the title race and Manchester United were nowhere to be seen. Uh, so there's definitely, in, in amongst all the rivalry, there is this feeling that Liverpool have not been given the credit they deserved, or weren't given the credit they deserve for what they were achieving in those seventies and eighties era, which fed in mm. to the toxic atmosphere, I think it would be remiss not not to talk about great managers, which and your book
1: does talk about some of the great managers. They're woven into the ten, the tens, the stories of the ten iconic games, um, and and I think uh, probably the one that stands out across both clubs most, of course, is Sir Alex Ferguson. Let, let me just say, <laughs> run right, right up front, uh, possibly as part of this question to you, Jim. I have the feeling that Sir Alex is not a particularly nice man. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, so says the Liverpool supporter. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he, just, he doesn't listen to this and, podcast, and I, I does I he? What comes across in that story, <laughs> uh, yeah, your, your, your chapter about um, Rafa's rent in the two thousand eight two thousand nine season, I think, is it links to this this question or this this point, which is that. You know, Sir Alex ultimately was, was not averse to using any sort of tactics and, and little, little strategies and, and any kind of bait that he could to wheedle out any advantage. And yet, when the same sort of mild tactic was used against him, well, I wouldn't say he couldn't take it because it wasn't really so much that he couldn't take it. It was what the media, I think, blew it up into a, a so-called rant. But, but I guess just coming back to the question, Jim, have you have actually ever met Sir Alex I mean, I, I I do appreciate that he's he's unquestionably one of the greatest managers the game's ever seen. If he was a CEO of a corporation, I have the feeling that he really would push the the legality of of what he did to leverage any kind of competitive advantage. And uh, yeah, I was just wondering if you've ever met him. Is he, is he a nice man in person?
2: Without doubt, he can be uh, extraordinarily charming, and one on one. Um, He can make you feel you're the most important person in the world. And I think that that was part of his uh, armoury as a manager. There is no doubt that Ferguson stepped up the Manchester United-Liverpool rivalry. When he'd been manager of Aberdeen in Scotland, he had used the dominance of the old firm in Glasgow as a fuel to drive Aberdeen to success. He basically told his players, they get all the advantages, they have the media on their side, they have the referees on their side. And I think when he came down uh, to manage Manchester United, he used a similar thought that he was going to uh, make uh, Liverpool the enemy without who they were going to beat. And Phil said uh, before that Liverpool felt that the the media was biased towards uh, uh, Manchester United. Um, And and Ferguson, uh, when he arrived, used that. He said, no, 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 the bias is Liverpool. Liverpool have all the pundits on their side. You know, we've got to beat them. Famously, he said later on in his career, about 2002, he was facing a bit of a crisis in his management. And the great Alan Hansen, great Liverpool Stalwart wrote in an article for the Daily Telegraph, my paper, um, that this was the biggest challenge that Ferguson faced. Ferguson then did a newspaper interview and said, no, no, no. The biggest challenge I faced was when I first arrived here and it was knocking Liverpool off their bleep, bleep perch. Um, yes. And you can print that, he said. Um, so, yes, he he absolutely uh, used the rivalry. And he'd stirred it up. And, you know, when that the class of 92 who were all Mancunians came through, apart from Beckham, were all, were all Mancunians. He he played on the rivalry that they had within them and, 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 yeah. and made it more important. And Gary Neville, who we spoke to, said that, you know, Man United's under-14s could be playing Liverpool and they'd be going on the bus to Crystal Palace and he'd be listening on the radio. This is the most important thing. We've got to beat them. You know, that mattered more to him. And he said that, Ferguson was always, yeah. going back to what you said, he was always a very cheery presence around the, uh, the training right. ground. You know, he, he used to whistle show tunes and that sort of thing, um, except when they were going to play Liverpool. And the week before, right. he became incredibly serious, incredibly committed. But I'll let Phil talk yeah. about the Rafa Rant, because I think that is a, a, a really interesting thing where a Liverpool challenger, tried to take him on at his own game.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. um, I think the first thing to to say about it is that it wasn't actually a rant. If you have so much time on your hands that you actually want to watch this on YouTube, he delivers a very calculated um, (laughs) list of perceived complaints with his little piece of paper. And it was planned days in advance because when we spoke to Jamie Carragher, He was doing his first ever piece of punditry leading to to what he does now uh, for Sky. And it was a game between Manchester United and Chelsea at Old Trafford. So he had to go and seek Rafa Benitez's permission to to do this. So he went into Benitez to look at that. I've been asked to do this. Do you mind? And he said, no, he said, but I should warn you, I'm going to say something on Friday and explained what he was going to do. So it wasn't some sort of hot headed Benitez throwing his jacket to the floor and raging about. To the, to the skies about Manchester United. It was a very calculated uh, piece of, if you go through it, it's clearly an attempt to redress what he felt was a balance, where any little marginal decisions from referees and stuff like that were going towards Manchester United. The problem was, uh, and I think a couple of Liverpool players said this, Liverpool were top of the league at the time, and it drew attention to Liverpool at a time when they didn't need it, they were, they were doing absolutely fine. Rafa had also just come out of hospital with kidney stones, very painful business. So there was some suggestion he might have just not been quite feeling himself anyway. But it, I went to a game the next day, Liverpool played Stoke City, and it at Stoke, and it was the most dismal, goalless draw uh, you have ever seen. And Rafa was sitting in the stands because he wasn't mm. well enough to sit on the touchline. And that was the start of a spell where Liverpool basically just drew too many games. That was People say Rafa's, in inverted commas, rant cost Liverpool the title. I don't think it did. I think what cost Liverpool the title was they drew too many games. But it was a tactic that didn't work. It wasn't particularly well-timed, but it wasn't a rant. And I, and I don't think, I personally don't think it cost Liverpool the title because he said it in December or January, a month before the end of the season. The reason Liverpool didn't win the league that season was not because of Rafa Benitez and his little piece of white paper. It was because they just drew too many football matches. But the rant, as you said, has assumed legendary status, and maybe a bit more of a legendary status than it actually deserves. But it was as it was a atta- it was an attempt at mind games, which did backfire because Gary Neville said he was watching it at home on Sky Sports News, and he just thought, "What's he doing?" And he thought, Bergie will be at his office at the Cliff or Carrington or wherever it was then." and he'd be the little crocodile smile and be out thinking, I've got it. But well, I think it's maybe been a little bit overplayed. It wasn't a rant, it didn't cost them the title.
1: That was probably, apart from the 77 FA Cup final, and as as you mentioned earlier, one or two other games, but that was probably the one time that, in my memory anyway, when the two sides were literally neck and neck for the for going for the title race. And uh, yeah, I think actually that 2008-2009 team that Benitez assembled was probably... One of, one of Liverpool's best sides, um, uh, but yeah, just pipped to the title by by Manchester United that,
0: that year. In one of those seasons where somebody appears from nowhere, wins the title for Manchester United and is never seen or heard of again, the name of Federico Makeda will always be celebrated for a goal at, against Aston Villa that gave United a vital win. Um, and of course, Liverpool had won 4-1 at Old Trafford. Um, where Torres, not for the first time, a terrified Vidic. But um, yes. you're right. I think that was a that was a top class side. And, and Jamie Carragher said to us, um, "It was one of his great regrets that yeah. that side, for all its quality, never won anything." Because he, I think he he may well have said that, that was the best team he played in in all the time he was at the Liverpool.
1: So we, we touched a little bit about how the media sort of, if, if you like, inflated Rafa's uh, complaints or, or snide remarks into a rant. And Jim, I think you mentioned earlier on um, in our discussion the, the Luis versus Patrice match. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that because I felt, you know, even at the time when it was exploding that, you know, this is probably a much ado about nothing. Of course racism is never much do about nothing but with all the all the hullabaloo around it and and the fact that I think Suarez got a was it a nine match ban or a uh, I might be confusing that with this biting incident but I know he got a significant ban do you think do you think that the, the episode was to an extent overplayed by the media
2: uh, Jim without question the problem within Liverpool was uh, that it was against Manchester United Kenny Dalglish was the manager, and he, in a sense, had the same sort of us against them mentality that Sir Alex Ferguson had. And yeah. it, Jamie Carragher says, looking back on it, he's rather embarrassed about uh, Liverpool's response. But he said they felt they had to go on the front foot because this was against Manchester United. And, you know, they, they had to defend yeah. their man against Manchester United. and. The, the the sense was well, Manchester United always gets the uh the the uh, Manchester United always gets the benefit of the doubt from the authorities. Um, Liverpool will be in the dock, will be unfairly treated. All those things um, were were part of their thinking, and then they went to the absurd extreme of wearing the T-shirts in support and so on. Ironically, you say about uh, the media, I think it was as much a social media storm as anything else. You know, Liverpool fans going into bat for Suarez, you know, talking about South American Spanish dialects and United fans going into bat for Evra and and, and talking about the, the racism that he was suffering and so on. Ironically, I think the media itself probably made more of a fuss about the fact that they didn't shake hands uh, when Suarez came back from his uh, ban. And indeed, the American owners of Liverpool, in a sense, that's what made them act. You know, that's what made them really say this isn't on. It was the lack of the handshake uh, that brought a full stop to it. I honestly don't think it would happen now. I think that things have changed completely. I think a club would, would step back um, immediately, even against Manchester United. But there is no doubt that that row was exacerbated by the fact it was Liverpool against Manchester United.
1: And that, that brings, brings me to another point, which is, which is that I think um, the rivalry itself, I'm interested to get your, 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 your guys' comments on this. The rivalry itself spurs both teams, both clubs, to, to greater glories. I mean, uh, would there be ha- have been the same level of, su- of success achieved by both clubs if this rivalry didn't exist? What do you, what do you think, Phil?
0: I think that um, Jim always makes a, a very good point about the fact that Sky and anyone involved with the Premier League would pay zillions to have a last-day title race between Liverpool and Manchester United. We've had it between Manchester City and Manchester United, We've had it between Liverpool and Manchester City, but never, bizarrely, between Liverpool and Manchester United. Um, when, when that will come, we don't know. But I think the other team, when, when another team is down uh, and the other one is up, there is always that capacity for the, other, the one that's down to shock the one who's on a high because that rivalry is so great. Um, a game in 1992 yep. that we do, um, when uh, Manchester United were going for the title against Leeds. Um, Liverpool were really... Uh, we spoke to Jan Mulby, and it was the back end of that great Liverpool side of the late 80s. You know, John Barnes, was, was not quite the player he was. Graham Souness was in hospital. It was all starting to go a bit pear-shaped. But we spoke to Jan, and he said he looked around the dressing room before that game at Anfield, and if Liverpool won, it would effectively hand the title to Leeds United. And he said he just looked around the dressing room and said we've got to do it today and he said Anfield even by its own standards was absolutely thunderous and it was all because Liverpool who were on the way down had the chance to stop Manchester United getting on the way up and it happened with Manchester United. Manchester United used to shock the great Liverpool team in cup competitions, they always had that capacity. I think I think the thing that and going back to again Jim quite understandably doesn't like to talk about which is the 5-0 Defeated, defeated Old Trafford. I think what galled Manchester United fans most about that game and also the subsequent 4-0 at Anfield at the end of last season was that there was no fight from Manchester United. They literally went down without a fight in both that 5-0 and the 4-0. And even in the, the era when United was supreme and then Liverpool were supreme and vice versa, there was always that capacity for a fight and a shock. And that was because this rivalry is so fierce it means so much. Um, Jim was talking about Alex Ferguson. If they were on the uh, that on under-14 and under-18 games, Gary Neville told us that on the coach to matches, Ferguson will be trying to get hold of people back at wherever the game was being played to find out how, how the under-14s had got on against Liverpool because at any level, he couldn't stomach defeat. And I think that is really at the heart of the rivalry because it, no, no matter where these yeah. two teams are, yeah there is that rivalry which yeah. football is at the heart of, uh, which keep, which keeps it going. Jim, I'll,
1: probably, I'll throw this one at you. A bit of an odd question, but I was quite interested to read in the book that the only player in the last 60 years that has been transferred between the two clubs is an a obscure striker by the name of Phil Chisnell. And subsequent to him, no player has ever transferred directly one way or the other. I guess the question is, you know, let me just go back a step so there's a comment from one of the fans that's interviewed in the book he says you know how fantastic that is it should never happen and he's very glad that it will never happen and yet with all the changes that are happening in the ownership of the clubs in the potential ownership transfers again we know that both clubs are now theoretically up for sale do you think that a player will actually ever be transferred between the two clubs in, in the near future, or perhaps in say five or ten years from now, uh,
2: it's a possibility, I guess. I mean, interestingly, you know, players have transferred direct between Real Madrid and, and, and Barcelona. I mean, the player Kenny Miller transferred yeah. so regularly between Rangers and Celtic that he almost had a bus pass to get between the two grounds. Um, but, um, it, no, it's not happened, and 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 you know. There have been efforts to stop it happening. Gabriel Heinzer, uh, the Argentine yes, yeah. left-back uh, at United, wanted to go to Liverpool. Liverpool wanted to sign him. Um, and Alex Ferguson, um, you know, took, took them to a tribunal to ensure that he didn't transfer there. Poor chap had to go to Real Madrid instead. Um, my heart bleeds for him. But, you, you know, that, that <laughs> Ferguson actually went to a tribunal to stop this happening. Um, yeah, and yeah. we spoke, um, you know, we spoke to John Scales, who was uh, a Liverpool player in the famous 1996 White Suits final. And he really got fed up with Liverpool after that game, got a transfer opportunity and wanted to go to United. But uh, United weren't interested in, in him. And, you know, Michael Owen, we, we approached Michael Owen. And he didn't want to speak about this because he said well, he well. cannot gain anything. You know, Michael Owen, this great Liverpool forward, ends yeah. up at United via Real Madrid and Newcastle United, not direct.
1: Newcastle. But, yeah.
2: but the Liverpool yes. supporters have never forgiven him, yeah. and in a sense, he's lost his place in the fans' pantheon of great players um, because he went yeah, absolutely. there. Um, and, and similarly Paul Ince in in, in the opposite direction who went mm-hmm. went via into Milan Manchester United into Milan to Liverpool i think yeah. it's 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 something that they'd have to really think very carefully about interestingly mm-hmm. Alexander Arnold who is a Liverpool supporter Ferguson tried to sign him as a 12 year old so obviously he doesn't mind too much. If he got a Liverpool player in, it was uh, Liverpool getting one of his that worried him. Uh, Alexander Arnold refused yeah, yeah, to go, obviously, yeah. because he's a Liverpool yeah. fan. But
1: I guess what's quite interesting to me, of course, we do need to talk about this. And I, I, want, I want both of your, your your opinions on this. I mean, the clubs are up for sale. Um, I saw, I think, if yesterday, Jim, there was, a, there was a formal bid from Sheik Jasim al the, the the Qatari... A national bank chairman or or CEO. Obviously, we know that that's not the only bid, but I mean, how does that make you feel? I know the the Glazers have absolutely milked Manchester United, but the idea of potentially Qatar or a Qatar entity owning your club—what are your views on that one?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. The the Glazers have used. uh... Manchester United as a personal cash machine for the last 18 years. Yeah. Uh, it looks as though yeah. we're going to be turned into a laundrette for sports washing, um, to be a vehicle <laughs> yeah. for the Qataris to promote themselves around the world. I mean, interestingly, you know, uh, I I feel queasy about this human rights issues, etc. Also, I don't see why Manchester United need a sugar daddy. They make enough money they, as long as they're effectively run and and the owners don't leach money out of them. They don't need Backing, but mm. I suspect that if the Qataris take over Manchester United and say we're going to invest, we're going to make them the greatest club in the world, debt-free, there'll be a lot of United fans who'll cheerfully mm. accept them as the new owners, which yeah. rather saddens yeah, me. But yeah. there we are.
1: Yeah, and Phil, I mean, we, you know, as a as a local-born and and bred a f- football follower and and someone like me, you know, I'll be honest with you, the idea of Liverpool being owned by by an entity like Qatar or a state-owned Chinese enterprise. It actually really stresses me out. Uh, what are your views about that, Phil?
0: I think the, the situation in Liverpool is slightly different. I suspect FSG are looking for a minority uh, stake and sale. Um, but I think that, and given past history, right. I think if it came out that um, Liverpool's owners were thinking of selling to Qataris or Saudi Arabians I think that you will see uh, people, I was going to say people on the streets, you will actually literally see people on the streets uh, protesting about it. Um, we've seen God. Liverpool fans have an ability to mobilise before. We saw it with the £77 ticket uh, when they all left the ground in the 77th minute. We saw it with the Super League, although they weren't nice. alone there. There were many fans. Um, I think, that, and, and I agree with Jim, there will be an element of any football club support. People will think if these guys arrive and give us £100 million to buy a local score us 45 goals a season, they will just say, great. I mean, we've seen it with Newcastle United, which is you know, the, the accusations mm-hmm. about human rights and sports washing. there. At the moment, Newcastle United fans are actually, in general, very, very happy because the money that's been put into the club by the owners, even though lots of people find it distasteful, has taken them to their first major cup final since 1999 and up into the top four or five in the Premier League. I was there, I was there on um, on Saturday night in Newcastle, and before the game at least, there was an air of celebration about what was to come, um, not just in the league, but at Wembley. But I think if it happened at Liverpool, and I, I think my, lots of Manchester United fans might do the same there. We've seen it with the green and gold protests. I think if Liverpool in any way suggests, or the owners of Liverpool in any way suggest, um, that they will be selling out to a state or Saudi Arabia or Qataris, I don't think Liverpool fans will go quietly on it. I don't think they'll say, that's great, we'll take that. Mm, I think yeah. you will literally see protests before and after games and maybe even during. You touched upon
1: it a, a, a few seconds ago. So just sort of nearing the end of our discussion, I'd just like to ask you both what you think. I mean, my feeling is that having, having read you know, a fair degree of media reports about this, the European Super League is by no means dead. I, I think it's going to be resurrected as an idea uh, imminently. But you guys are closer to it than than me, Uh, Jim. uh, Can you give us a a bit of an update on on, uh, developments there, maybe?
2: Well, I think two things uh, about this, Dave. First of all, the Premier League teams are very, very unlikely to get involved in another breakaway, given the reaction that there was from their core market the last time. Also, the Premier League is the world's biggest football entity. Um, And they're doing very nicely uh, financially out of the Premier League. Uh, Would they want to jeopardise that? The other thing is, just think of the politics of this. You've spoken about the Qataris. The Qataris bought PSG uh, as as part of their bid to get the World Cup. Their president of PSG is now the president of the European football uh, clubs. They're right in with UEFA. So it's going to be very hard for Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus, who are the driving forces of them, to prize away PSG. So they're not going to get the Premier League. They're not going to get PSG under any circumstances. Are they going to get Bayern Munich? I'm not sure because the Bundesliga is properly regulatory body. They have to answer to the fans in a way that clubs elsewhere in the world don't have to. And if you haven't got those three leagues what is the European Super League? I think what will happen yeah. instead yeah. is that UEFA will change the Champions League to make it more favourable to the big clubs, so they'll always be in it. I think that's probably ultimately what's going to happen.
1: I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to ask you a slightly different question just to round off, and it's a tricky one. Off the top of your head, without thinking too much, your best ever Liverpool eleven. Goodness me.
0: Um... <laughs> I wish you'd give me warning about that. Um, I would say I, I can give you some players I think should be in it. I couldn't name an 11. I have to have a think about that. But I would say certainly off the top of my head, I would say the goalkeeper okay. would be Ray Clements. I think Alan Hansen would be in it. I think Graeme Souness would be in it. I think Kenny Dalgleish would be in it. I think Ian Rush would be in it. Uh, Stephen Gerrard would be in it. And I think also you have to include the great Roger Hunt in it as well. Um, I'd have to have a think about the other positions. Maybe Andy Robertson at left back. Um, I've given you quite a few there. Give, see, you just sprung that one on me. But I, I think the players I've given you there, I would put in an all-time great Liverpool. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I tend to agree with most of, pretty much all of those that you said. Yeah, yeah. I know that was a bit of an unfair question. <laughs> ask ask um, Jim, ask him. Jim. Okay, Jim, give me your best, best match tonight at 11
2: Bans <laughs> uh, uh, Sh- out. Schmeichel... <laughs> Neville, Ferdinand, Vidic, Irwin, Robson, Keane, Giggs. This is, by the way, I've I've seen. So I'm not going back to Charlton Best, etc. Because I never saw them. So Michael, Neville, Ferdinand, Vidic, Irwin, Robson, Keane, Giggs, Cantona, (laughs) Rooney. And at the moment, Rashford. What a difference.
1: A few months in football makes, you know, if I think back to, as we've discussed, the 4-0 uh, and the 5-0 from last season. And now, you know, Liverpool's fortunes are, are OK, we're, we're ticking up again slightly, but you guys are flying at the moment, Jim.
2: Yes, uh United are flying at the moment. But as Gary Neville said to us when we were asking him about what the rivalry with Arsenal in the early noughties meant, he said... Liverpool were always in the rear view mirror. You were always weren't worried that Trust. they were going to yeah. spring on top of you and beat yeah. you. And, you know, I bet you, Liverpool, make it into the Champions yeah. League places next season. They will. And it might, might eventually be at United's expense. Well. But you know what happened? It's extraordinary, Dave. What yeah. happens is apparently if you get a good manager, you play good football. Who knew?
1: Mm-hmm. Who would have knew? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Phil McNulty. Jim White, thank you so much. It's been brilliant talking to you. The the, the book is a phenomenal book. Uh, I think if you're a sports lover of any kind, you'll enjoy it. But if you're a football lover, you will absolutely love it. And if you're a Liverpool and a Manchester United fan, I think what it underpins is uh, this quote that I'll I'll leave you with from uh, the great uh, World Cup winner for Argentina. He was a brilliant writer as well. Jorge Valdano, he said... I love football because it's the opposite of science. It's contradictory, it's primitive, it's emotional. And I think what comes through in the book is all of, all of, that, all of, all of those, those great things about the game we love. So, Jim, Phil, thanks very much again. It's been lovely to Thank chat you. to you. And I wish you all the success with, with the book.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.